Hello, everybody. Welcome to Grassroots Conversations, a podcast of Grassroots Church in Rockford, Illinois. I am your host, Evan Savage. I'm also also the lead pastor at Grassroots Church. And today on the show, we are talking about the Bible. We're beginning a series that will air once a week where we detail some things about the Bible that you may not have known. We are going to go through Genesis all the way through Revelation over the course of however many podcasts it takes, and we are going to just talk about the Bible. And so on today's episode, we are talking about the Pentateuch, or what is also known as the Torah, or the five, the first five books of the Bible. And so I cannot wait to uh, enjoy this conversation with you. I cannot wait to have you uh, enjoy it with us. And so let's get to it. So yeah, so we're, we're getting into this podcast on the Bible and we're, what we're going to try to uh, ultimately answer uh, in the next uh, few podcasts is, uh, is the Bible true? Is it reliable? Can we believe what it says? And the only real way to understand that is if we truly understand the Bible. I mean, there's a ton of stuff in the Bible, whether it's uh, genre differences, whether you have poetry or you have historical narrative or you have fiction, there's some fable in there. There's also some riddling, like some riddles and stuff like that. And so we're uh, talking about uh, what is the Bible and how can we understand the Bible and can we rely on the Bible um, as much as people say we should or as much as people say we can. And so today we're going to do an overview. What we're going to do in this is we're going to go through the Bible uh, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We're not doing it today, but we're going to do it throughout the year. And every week we'll post a new podcast that talks about a new topic, whether it's a new book or whether it's a new series of books and things like that. And so today we're beginning all the way at the beginning of the Bible in what is known as the Pentateuch. We might know this as uh, uh, the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. Uh, we're going to do an overview of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, the one thing that I want us to realize about these books is <coughs> is that these books were um, written written as essentially one long document. You're looking so when we look at Genesis through Deuteronomy. We are not looking at five separate books. We're actually looking at one large document and that was separate, separated into five distinct parts. Um, and the reason why it was separated is actually a very uh, practical reason. It's because there was only so much space in a scroll and, and people could only carry so much weight. And so they had to separate it uh, in, in relatively equal parts in order for it to uh, be readable, be carryable, um, and be uh, studyable. <laughs> all said and done, you don't want a giant scroll. Um, there were no bounded books back in the day. They didn't have like a bounded Bible like we do with a spine. Everything was written on a scroll. And so because of that, uh, this one long document, which we know as the Torah or the Pentateuch, is actually, um, yeah, it's actually one long document. It's not five different books. Now, with that, uh, there's some evidence for that, uh, obviously. So there's evidence in that um, there, each book continues from where the last book left off. Um, 
the, the greatest example of this is in Leviticus 1, 1, the very first word in many translations is then, or in some translations, it, translations it is and, which picks off, picks up right where Exodus left off. And you could read it, really, you could actually read it as, you could, you could kind of begin at the end of Exodus and kind of go right into Leviticus without really missing a beat. There's not different language styles, not different writing styles in that instance, um, there's not even a different genre style in that instance. It's, it's all, um, uh, just, it's one long document. It's evidence for that. Now, uh, the Pentateuch is probably, um, it's the most misunderstood section of the Bible, I would say, uh, uh, because a lot of people, we, the way a lot of people refer to it as, is they refer to it as the law. And there is law in there. Um, a lot of people refer to it simply as Jewish history or Hebrew, the history of the Hebrew people, or even the story uh, from the creation all the way to Moses' death. It ends in, at the end of Deuteronomy with the death of Moses. So I want us to begin uh, pretty quickly. We, we see uh, that, that actually the original document... Um, the original Pentateuch, if you will, before it was split up into five different sections, is actually split up into different sections uh, that read something along the lines of, and these are the name of the sons. These are the names of the sons of Adam, or these are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Cain. These are the generations of Abraham. These are the gener you know, so on. You get it. You know, some genealogy stuff that kind of separates the document. Uh, in and of itself already. Uh, and so that's just another example of, of how we can understand that this is actually one document. And when we when we think about it in that sense, it kind of actually makes a lot more sense to us in terms of of what uh, what this what this piece of literature is. Um, and so uh, the first thing I want to talk about is authorship. Um, who wrote? the Pentateuch. Uh, uh, traditionally, uh, it has been ascribed to Moses. Moses, a lot of people, a lot of uh, scholars or, or co more conservative scholars would say that, that Moses wrote uh, the Pentateuch. And this is even referred to as the law of Moses or the covenant of Moses. And while that might not be 100% untrue, it certainly is not 100% true, if that makes sense. Um, and I, I'll, I'll explain this here. Um, it is not out of the realm of possibility that Moses had a hand in writing uh, this document. We know that Moses was educated. He was educated in the house of Pharaoh. And so we know that he would have been able to read, he would have been able to write. Um, and so he would have been uh, certainly capable of of doing this, but the, in all likelihood, what the Pentateuch actually is, is that it is a, a collection of shorter writings that were comprised together and turned into one continuous document, a whole bunch of different writers, a whole bunch of different writings. Moses undoubtedly contributed some to this, um, or he had, or he commissioned other people, uh, to contribute to it, whether it was, hey, I want you to record what I'm about to say so that it could be documented. Um, there are a few evidences for this, uh, quite simply. There are distinctively different 
writing styles throughout uh, throughout the whole Pentateuch, whether it's Genesis one, chap- Genesis one, which is very poetic in nature, and Genesis two, which is very narrative in nature. Those are distinctively different writing styles. And back in the day, people didn't really dabble in uh, writing styles that that were not that they were not comfortable with. You kind of stuck to one writing style. It's not like today where you have uh, some authors will sometimes write poetry or sometimes write narrative literature or anything like that. These people kind of, uh, back in the day, uh, the Hebrew people specifically, really stuck to what they knew and what they could do well. So there's different writing styles throughout this. Another thing is that there's actually different language and different understanding of language throughout. Uh, Whether it's early forms of kind of, of of language that is derivative of of more egyptian style language all the way to some aramaic is in there and some more modern i say modern but it's actually ancient <laughs> to the newest form at the time of the hebrew language so there's different languages being used uh throughout uh and so you could really see uh at the beginning uh, obviously in English, it all kind of reads the same, but if you were to actually look at the original documents, which we don't have, but if you were to look at the original documents, you would, you would be able to see, uh, uh, back in, you would be able to see, uh, early, early Jewish literature, early Genesis and stuff like that would have been more derivative of Egyptian style language. And then later on, you would see more uh, Hebrew style language. And in the middle, you'd have seen some some form of, uh, of an Aramaic uh, type of a language. Now, the plot of the Pentateuch, there's a lot in this document uh, in particular. Uh, there's a lot of stuff from the story of creation. There's two uh, different stories of creation, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Uh, then there's a giant flood, right? That's another thing. We have a whole slew of characters throughout uh, uh, the, the Pentateuch, whether it's Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers, known his brothers, Joseph, as in Joseph who got the colorful coat. Um, Joseph and his brothers, his brothers are known as the patriarchs. They are the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, that's why they're known as the patriarchs, um, to Moses and Aaron, and there's a pharaoh in the middle of this, and uh, there's a golden calf even that, that was worshipped, and, and so on. It goes on and on and on and on. But the central character and the central theme of of the Pentateuch is, is truly God and God's revelation to man. Uh, the, the whole story, uh, you can kind of look at the Pentateuch as... Uh, as a mountain, if you will. It begins low and it ends low. And then at the climax, at the pinnacle of the mountain, is is the, the pivotal event of the Pentateuch. And that is where God reveals his covenant to Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, it is where uh, God delivers his commands to the people. Uh, and that's really the, the pivotal moment. That is where the Hebrew people stop being... A distinct race of people and really start to see themselves as a nation of people. And so that's that, that pivotal event is the central is the central story to the whole uh, uh, tour, the whole Pentateuch. Now intertwined in all these stories are fun things like genealogies and law codes and constitutional codes. And there's actually the Israeli national anthem, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 23. 
or excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 32. There are military registration lists found in Numbers 1 through 3. There's actually itineraries, like journey itineraries in number, uh, for instance, in Numbers uh, 33. There are boundary outlines, things like this. There's a whole slew of different information all crammed into this document. So what we are actually looking at, uh, when we come down to the basic things of what the Pentateuch is, what we're actually looking at is uh, a governmental document. Document. We're, <clears throat> we are looking essentially at, whether it's a constitution or uh, history or whatever it is, we're actually looking at a government document of the Hebrew people who would eventually become known as Israel. Uh, there, and the, the cool thing about this government document is that in the laws, mixed in with the laws and mixed in with the regulations and mi mixed in with all the codes and stuff like that, there are narratives thrown in to this thing, uh, which places the laws in a particular context uh, that is actually very helpful to us as readers of this. You know, we're talking 4,000 years later. Uh, it's, it's actually uh, very helpful for us. I want us to think about really quickly the Constitution of the United States. Uh, and we could even uh, even dumb it down even further and say uh, just the, the, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments uh, to the Constitution, uh, or whatever they're called, right? The, the, it is a 100%, the Constitution of the United States is 100% a law document. Uh, it details the freedoms of a, na of a nation's people. Uh, if you were to look at you know amendments one through ten, they're, they're the freedoms that we have as a people. Now the arguments that that take place over the Constitution are rarely arguments that are found from within the document, and are almost always arguments that are found from con uh, con understanding contextual realizations based around the document. Uh, so in other words, the First Amendment. Uh, in, in, in the United States Constitution is the freedom of religion. Uh, we are free to worship as we please, but uh, the, and the government is uh, restricted from forcing upon us uh, a certain particular faith. Now, that's really nice and great, and that's a great amendment, but when we understand the context of why that amendment is there, then we could better understand the power of that law. Uh, you know, back in you know, 200 some odd years ago when the, when the United States was formed uh, and, and England kind of ruled all this land, if you will, or most of or the first third of this land, the England was very uh, suppressive of non-Church uh, of England type faiths. Uh, they wanted everybody had to worship in the same style. They had to worship uh, at the same places. Uh, you're actually told in many instances where your church was, what church you could go to, and they were. It, it was a time where religious intolerance was really at its peak. Um, the very intolerant of other faith or other faith expressions, specifically Christian faith expressions. Uh, this is why the pilgrims came over. The pilgrims fled Europe um, and came over to the United States uh, in New England because of they wanted the freedom to worship God as they saw fit. And when you understand that context, you better understand why that freedom in the First Amendment of the Constitution is 
there. That's and so what the the Pentateuch actually does, and what the the as referred to by many as the law actually does, is between all these different laws and between all these different codes and constitutional things, we get to see and experience the context through which they were uh, relayed and, and written and and and, and uh, enforced, if you will. So. Uh, I like to say it like this. So if, if I were to come up with a law that says, uh, thou shalt not drink dish soap and just leave it at that, it'd be like, okay, that's a, that's a strange law. But if I were to say something along the lines of there once was a man who was walking through his house and he came upon a bottle of what looked like a delicious greenish blue drink. He opened the cap and he took upon himself the drink of this greenish blue thing. And because of that, he got extremely ill and he fell into a period of vomiting profusely. And then he came to the realization that this was not a, a delicious bluish greenish drink. This was actually the soap in which you watch in which you watch wash <laughs> the dishes. Therefore, do not drink the nasty dish soap. <laughs> Because it will make you sick. So we understand the context of these things. It's better for you to understand the context. Why don't you eat? Why don't you eat animals that still have blood in it? Things like that. There's a lot of sanitary stuff. A lot of how you relate to other people specifically in the world and how you keep yourself from getting ill. There's a lot of uh, sanitary laws in the Old Testament. Um, the and so we talk about the Torah and the law. Uh, we must understand that how this is written is that it is written with a lot of contextual information surrounding why we have the laws that we have. You know, when Moses came down off of the mountain, he saw these people that he just helped deliver out of bondage, and he saw them worshiping somebody other than the God that had delivered them, and it caused anger and frustration and he was forced to go and he was forced to uh, have another conversation with God to keep God from you know killing everybody essentially is what the what the tale is but it's through that com uh, contextualization where we understand the worship of the one true God now one of the most controversial books in the Old Testament is the book of Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus is uh, it's a it's a essentially just a book of laws. There's some contextual information in there, but mainly it is just a book of laws. It is a book that uh, details law after law after law, rule after rule after rule. Now, the title Leviticus actually means as pertaining to the Levites. Now, the Levites were a tribe of Israel, and they were the class, uh, the, the priestly class. All of the priests were to come from this one tribe. So this tribe was essentially elevated uh, religiously, specifically religiously, elevated above the other tribes. It's where the rulers and all these people came from in order to uh, uh, help help the, the Hebrew people and help really help the world uh, serve God better. Uh, and these are primarily rules in the book of Leviticus. They are primarily rules that help the Levitical class, if you will, uh, to separate itself from the culture around it. Uh, they, they are uh, rules that help... Uh, people live separate lives, what we actually call holiness, to separate, to become righteous, right? Uh, set apart from all of 
creation. Uh, this does this does not mean that Leviticus is obsolete now, but what this means is that uh, the viewpoint of the people that we're reading about in the Pentateuch was that there's one God and one creator. There's no such thing as really, there's no such thing as religion at this point for them is that we all serve the same God and that the Levites were called to be the priests, um, the priests for all creation, the people that we look to, uh, to get our religious, uh, information to, that we get, that we look to, to get all of the knowledge and understanding that we have. And so this isn't an, an exclusionary document. This is actually a very inclusive understanding of, of, of the viewpoints of ancient Hebrew people is that the Levites were to be uh, the, the religious leaders or the faith, the faithful leaders of all of creation. And so the, the book of Leviticus is really a book of how uh, to separate oneself from the rest of the world so that people can look to you, not uh, out of jealousy or anything, but they could look to you and say, oh, there's something different about that person. There's something more holy. There's something more righteous about that person. It's not to rub it in somebody else's face, but it's to elevate oneself above the common, if that makes sense. But again, that doesn't mean that that book is completely obsolete. I think a lot of times we tend to look at the book of Leviticus and say, oh, this book is 100% pointless, but it is a book of information that helps us realize for today, not necessarily the, the, the individual rules, but that when we come into faith, we, we can understand that, oh, now we're called to elevate ourselves so that people can really truly see uh, the gospel and the light of Jesus in and around us. Um, the uh, When I think about uh, the book of Leviticus and the Pentateuch in general, uh, we we are we are fortunate to be able to look back on the life of Jesus as the fulfillment of this, as as the as the one person who was able to live up to these standards. No one else was able to live up to these standards throughout history, and but we we are fortunate to have uh, a view of uh, uh, a picture to look at, if you will, where Christ. Uh, is the fulfillment of this law. And uh, we get to see this, and we get to experience this, and we get to strive after a tangible thing in order for us to elevate ourselves. And that elevation is always in love for neighbor, love for God. That's literally, uh, Jesus said that the whole law can be summed up into these two things, love your neighbor and love God. So if we do these things, we could better elevate. That means we don't do anything that hurts our neighbor. We don't do anything that is against our neighbor. We only act in a manner that is loving. Another thing that, that we should talk about uh, when in this overview is the historicity. Is it historically accurate? Now, I will say that we have a very different view today of history than uh, ancient peoples had. Um, we have a view that is that is really truly built upon this idea of fact, fact pa- fact based uh, history and fact based recording. We want to record facts rather than record uh, existential history. 
So there's a lot of hard to believe things in in the uh, in the Pentateuch. Uh, the one that is most commonly argued against in the Pentateuch is actually the the Hebrews people's enslavement and exodus in and out of Egypt. Uh, there is little to no archaeological evidence for the Hebrew people ever being in Egypt or the Hebrew Hebrew people ever wandering in the desert. Now we could easily pinpoint this to, they were a nomadic group for much of that time, for at least 40 years. They were a nomadic group and they uh, lived their lives on the go. And so the archeological evidence of that is going to be a little bit more difficult to find in general. But, uh, there is no real, uh, even evidence of enslavement in Egypt. There's no archaeological evidence. Uh, some people might say that the flood is the most argued thing, but there is uh, some little archaeological evidence in that there was some form of cataclysmic flood in the region, specifically that there are many different faith groups documented this event. Whether it's a worldwide flood, whether it's just regional, uh, there is evidence of some some sort of cataclysmic event that happened. But Exodus is really unique because it truly is the foundation of much of what uh, Hebrew people and the Jewish people believed, and that there is no or little to no uh, evidence to say that it actually happened. But the one thing I will say that there's an axiom that we that we must realize. Now, if you don't know what an axiom is, an axiom is a, a statement that is true in and of itself. Um, it is basically a true a truism, if you will. Uh, and the axiom goes like this: absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. In other words, uh, how we view something, or, or, or if if we only believe something that has evidence and a lack of evidence informs our disbelief, then we should rethink that a little bit. Um, lack of evidence does not mean that something never occurred or something didn't happen. Really what it means is that we should just keep looking, is all it says. If you're, if you're, if you're so infatuated with the evidence of something, then keep looking, keep digging, keep uh, trying to figure out uh, 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 how it actually went down. And so a lack of evidence does not mean uh, that it didn't happen. And and there is a skeleton, quote unquote, what's called a skeleton of evidence in the region that where the Bible actually fits really well within, especially the Pentateuch actually fits really well within, uh, whether it's cultural evidence, archaeological evidence of cultures around that, how people live their lives, how people interacted with one another, how people worshipped. The Bible fits really, really well within the skeleton. So there is evidence, uh, archaeological evidence that helped the Bible, helped the Pentateuch specifically fit within a certain context and a certain era of time. So there is, I will say there is a historical element uh, to much of the Pentateuch. There is uh, what is known as historical narrative, people detailing actual events that happened. You have to understand the authors were not sitting down writing what they believed to be fiction. They were writing uh, what they had researched and what they had other documents that helped them inform their decision to write it down. And so they, they believe that they were writing histor history, and we should regard much of what the Pentateuch says as historical. Um, this, is not, this is not that we consider a lot of it, a lot of the stuff as fact. 
uh, specifically pre-Genesis 12. Genesis 1 through 11 fits into what is known as, in the academic world, as myth. Excuse me. Now, myth does not mean what we think it means today. We tend to think that myth is something that just a, a, a false story. When in reality, myth is 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 a a story or a description of historical events or evidential events in terms that are understandable. Uh, in other words, myth is something is is a description of something that actually happened, but in ways that we can understand how it happened. So the creation story, or how how many people nowadays refer to it as the creation myth. Uh, is not history in the way that we think history, but it's history in the fact that the event of creation actually happened. How it happened is is up for debate. Whether it's six days, whether it's billions of years, uh, that 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 part doesn't matter so much. What the the truth of the story is that it was created, and so the myth really is around a fact, and it puts it into terms that we can best understand. So this brings me to kind of the final point of this overview, and I and I look forward to the next few months as we get into uh, these different books and we get into understanding these books specifically. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the books. We're not necessarily going to read the books. Uh, I encourage you to, after you listen to the podcast, to go and read these books. Now, the Pentateuch, all the books are super long, and so it will take you a few days. Maybe uh, if you're a slower reader, it'll take you a couple of weeks. But I encourage you to read these books as we go and detail uh, some of the information on these. But my final point and the biggest answer to the question is, or the biggest question that we're going to try to answer throughout this is, is the Bible true? Now, we live in a post-enlightenment world, and that post-enlightenment world informs us that truth equals fact. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, is that truth does not equal fact. Fact and truth are actually, they're on parallel trajectories, and they do intertwine every once in a while. Uh, more often than not, they intertwine, but but fact and truth are different. Truth is this idea of something that is existentially and transcendentally true. Uh, it is true for today and here and how in the existence of everything. There is truth in that when it comes to uh, how we operate as human beings, how we interact with one another. And then there's a transcendental, uh, an otherworldly truth that the Bible is trying to teach us uh, in and of itself. So I don't want us to mix up true, true stories with factual stories, because there's a lot that you're going to find out as we detail this, uh, specifically throughout after we get out of the Pentateuch, there's a lot of stuff that you say, well, this might not be a true story, um, or a factual story, should I say, but it is a true story. Uh, you can look at it uh, in very similar ways as how movies, when movies say that this is based upon a true story. In other words, uh, the, the, the message of the story is true. But it might not be factual in the events of what has happened. There's a lot of that specifically in the Old Testament that pops up. So I want us to keep that with there. So with all of that, with all that said, I look forward to every Friday 
we are going to sit down and we're going to have a conversation much like this where we're talking about the Bible and we're going to go through from Genesis all the way through Revelation. So this thing is going to continue on for as long as it takes. There are 66 different books and there are at least seven different sections. So you could talk about, we're going to be doing this for almost a year and a half. So uh, I look forward to it. I cannot wait to continue this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I hope uh, this answers a lot of questions or, and I also hope that it sparks a lot of questions and it sparks a conversation within yourself. With that said, I cannot wait to uh, see you next time. And until then, we'll talk to you later.